concerned by the number of times I hear you saying like, oh yeah, we'll cut this out. I mean, it just makes the cut in other podcasts. Um, Do it. <laughs> it's like a meme. Yeah. <laughs> Is it? Um, I've been saying we'll cut this out and just like keeping things in all the time. Okay. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> it makes it sound like it's a licit recording or something. No, no, no it's, 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 it's an important part of the power system relationship. People need ordering principles. 12 rules. Hello, welcome to Troubles for What. My name is Sam. I'm Alex. And we're here with a member of Red Flare. What's, what's your name? Uh, Alan Jones. Alan uh, Jones. Alan Jones. A kind of combination of Alex Jones and Alan Dulles, I think. So they're both both the US Deep State and the other part of the US Deep State. I see that uh, Alan here is taking the same <laughs> the same approach that we took to our own fake names, which is just desperately think about them on the spot. <laughs> yeah. No, we've used it before. Okay. Yeah, it's like what? the generic um, uh, spokesperson name. Are you saying that there is no spokesperson called Alan Jones in Red Flare? I think it's been spelled incorrectly, like multiple ways already. It's like a pseudonym that's been used throughout history. I might be, I might be wrong. Like one of the right, names we use. Kind of yeah, Luther Blissett we've used as well, <laughs> which I didn't know about until until we used it. I thought Luther Blissett was a real person who wrote the novel Q. It turns well, out they didn't. It was a collective. Or well, Q is written by um, uh, that guy from A Chat, right? <laughs> what? Oh, Q. Oh, yeah, gotcha, yeah, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. We've kind of trailed this episode quite a lot in the in the past few weeks on social media. Um, we're here with Red Flare specifically because you had this big uh, story that you put in the Times. The Times investigation editor did this two-page spread and. You contributed, I believe, contributed quite a lot of information about particular alternative to uh, this story, and this is like one of the few times when like a big story has got into a, like a big mainstream uh, publication about Pierre. But they still haven't really, as like a far right group, they're not really in the public consciousness. A lot of people don't really know about them. I expect a lot of our audience would be aware, but like not like have got some vague notion they exist, but maybe not know the specifics. So very quickly, could you say? You know what is what is Patrick alternative? How did they come together? Yeah, I think you're right. Um, they are still it's still a pretty obscure group. Um, probably not to the people that are in the sort of anti-fascist research space, but in the public consciousness, I think they are still largely unheard of. Although they're slowly starting to accumulate uh, more and more headlines. So, um, to try and sort of succinctly explain what patriotic, patriotic alternative is, um, it is a, a neo-Nazi group that has emerged from an ecosystem of kind of online uh, far-right content creators in the kind of aftermath of the collapse of the what was called the alt-right uh in the US and the UK I suppose and really what patriotic alternative is trying to do its main um the main task it set itself I suppose is to bring uh kind of people that have been radicalized online into the real world and into real world political organizing um and specifically what's kind of important and interesting about them is the way in which they've gone about doing this. So their organisational 
uh, model or I, could, I don't know what you'd call it, a strategy for growth differs from um, groups like the EDL and uh, Britain First, Generation Identity, whoever else you can think of, um, in that they've not sought to, uh, they've completely and quite consciously from the start avoided the kind of confrontational street demonstrations that have uh, been typical of the British far right for I don't know, several decades at least. And instead, what they've kind of attempted to do is, um, and with some success, is to organise real-life meetups and events that internet Nazis can attend and meet one another, uh, develop connections, and begin to think about kind of real-world activism. So you use the term neo-Nazi specifically there to describe their politics. And of course, obviously I'm not, I'm not going to put the PA's view, but that's not how they describe themselves. They describe themselves as kind of like a, a I suppose, a white solidarity, white um, white community building mm. organisation. Where do you see the neo-Nazism in their politics and their activity? Yeah, so I was thinking about this earlier, actually. So I think it's a term that deserves some qualification. About the community building thing, that is simply the kind of how they badge up their kind of... Um, these are organising these kind of uh, vetted secret meetups. They just call it community building. Um, and, uh, you know, in some respects, it's kind of accurate w- way of describing it. They are certainly, with some success at least, building a community of like-minded people on the far right. I mean, specifically with the term neo-Nazi, um, so there's a couple of points here. So firstly, there's why they would not describe themselves as this. And secondly, there's why it's appropriate to describe them using this term. Well, maybe it's a pretty obvious why they wouldn't, but just say it out loud anyway. Well, uh, well, why do you think they wouldn't? I think they wouldn't because neo-Nazi attracts a certain level of attention from the police and from the state and would attract a certain but, amount but, of... But there's also the wider British far right. I mean, like the, the foundational myth of British right-wing politics, not just the far right politics, Iranian politics more generally is that we defeated the Nazis, right? And that's the, yeah. the soul. That's the kind of the that's what Britain is, right? The thing that defeated the Nazis in some like for some of these people. This is why Churchill becomes so important. Right? It was literally one of the largest far right demonstrations for a very long time about like defending the statue of Churchill. This is you know, no small thing to describe yourself as the Nazis, even if there's no real content to that politics of being anti-Nazi. I think anti-Nazism is a is a big part of the British far right. Yeah, so there's a few like reasons um, that they kind of avoid describing themselves in that way. I don't know, did it, did National Action describe themselves as neo-Nazis? Probably not. They describe themselves as nationalists, actually. So okay, sure. so uh, yeah, there's like the points you mentioned that it kind of turns off a lot of people straight away. It's the sort of thing if you kind of introduce yourself as a Nazi, <laughs> it's like nobody's going to listen to what you're going to say next. Um, they're, they're, even people on the far right. right? Yeah, yeah, even people on the far right. It's kind of, uh, yeah, I suppose like you'd have to be a complete crank to, to do that. So quite often, or on, a, on several occasions, uh, Mark Collette, who's the leader of Patriotic Alternative, and several other figures uh, within the organisation have sort of said, uh, "I'm not a Nazi." But what they mean by this specifically is that they they are not a member of the Nazi Party, and they can't be a Nazi because they're not living in 1930s Germany. Uh, several uh, activists or supporters of the organisation have described themselves as uh, national socialists. Uh, Collet, in his book, kind of waxes lyrical about the 
benefits of national socialism um and yeah like i think neo-nazi is uh, i was reading something the other day that described tommy robinson as a neo-nazi and it's the sort of term that gets kind of bandied around um you know yeah to be clear like tommy robinson is is not a nazi uh certainly like a islamophobic <laughs> i mean he, this is a thing like he wouldn't even describe himself as a racist right whereas maybe that's where that's a term that pa might be more happy to embrace why are they why is it accurate to describe themselves as neo-nazis well okay so like you said if you look at their website um kind of close reading sorry not a close reading a um superficial a superficial reading of it would it doesn't you know it looks quite sort of fluffy they're talking about community building uh actually when you look at uh any of the kind of telegram chats um or kind of listen to any of the content that they're producing in the chats and occasionally uh in the kind of podcasts and live streams there is like veneration of hitler uh celebration of nazi atrocities holocaust denialism is is a huge part um, of it one of the things they talk about um one of their main sort of talking points is the great replacement uh, conspiracy theory and i mean this is something that isn't unique to uh, patriotic alternatives so generation identity also kind of um tried to sort of meme this uh but where they differ is that uh pa are quite uh, vocal that it is actually a jewish conspiracy um that's leading to this uh, demographic shift they claim um so i think for all of these reasons uh it's it's kind of accurate to describe them as neo-nazi and it's uh, convincing to some extent um and to some extent convinced um i think it's a genuinely quite like a vexed question and it's something that this podcast spends perhaps like a little too much time kind of ruminating on like what are the exactly right terms so perhaps we're kind of drilling in uh too much so i want to get into this idea that we should be concerned about p that we should consider them in particular a threat and one of the main reasons for doing so i think is that they're actually quite ambiguously positioned strategically they're not really an electoral force like the BNP. They will get into why that is in a moment. They're also not, they've also explicitly disavowed these kind of large-scale street demonstrations that the EDL and DFLA were doing. They don't have the kind of big platform imprint that something like Britain First had, you know, who in UK politics were second in size only to the Labour Party on Facebook or something. They were second to the Queen. Yeah, it was second to the Queen. Yes, like absolutely enormous, kind of unbelievably huge. And this is really quite significant. Patriotic alternative doesn't have that. And also they haven't so far produced any direct kind of terrorist actions, right, that have come directly out of the organisation. So what is the threat that we should be modelling? Is it that it's not really clear where they're going next? Is it that they don't really have a clearly defined strategy? Or is it that they are, you know, avowedly national socialists? And we haven't really seen a group like that apart from National Action, who were kind of very obviously neo-Nazi, very obviously terroristic, who were then crushed by the state. But PA are much more nuanced about how they present themselves. So there's a few things. Uh, There's like a number of different ways you can answer this, I think. Um, So one of the reasons, there's sort of positive and negative reasons why, why why they're a threat. So... The negative reasons would be there's a kind of absence of scrutiny of them, uh, partly for the reasons that you mentioned already. So they don't seem to, I think, 
most people in the UK, when they think about the far right, either think about uh, Tommy Robinson, the EDL, maybe Britain first, um, or the sort of thing that Hope Not Hate have been making a lot of noise about recently, these kind of um, Telegram, terroristic groups uh, networking on Telegram and other kind of encrypted uh, messaging applications that are sort of um, spectacular and dramatic because they do kind of firearms training in the rural United States and kind of issue communiques wearing camouflage and balaclavas and this sort of thing. Um, I mean, PA really from the outset has been set up deliberately to avoid the kind of scrutiny and opposition from both anti-fascists uh, and kind of journalists. Uh, Mark Collett, maybe we can talk about uh, a bit later, has, it, has had his kind of fair share of uh, embarrassment at the hands of uh, a number of journalists. Russell Brand, probably my personal favourite. <laughs> <laughs> so they've like, yeah, deliberately sought to kind of evade attention. And they've been like fairly successful at this because they're not doing these... Uh, kind of spectacular street demonstrations and, uh, you know, either in central London or going to the kind of uh, what the EDL used to do, which was go to kind of uh, areas with large uh, Muslim populations, kind of deliberately confrontational style. They've been able to grow a fairly sort of coherent and within the context of neo-Nazi organising, sizable network of regional groups and supporters in a number of areas across the UK, um, which I think even if PA was to kind of collapse uh, and fade into obscurity tomorrow, those networks that have been established will ha continue to have ramifications on the British far right for years or maybe decades to come. So that's one of the reasons, the kind of positive reasons why they're a threat. I guess like the lack of scrutiny is one of the kind of so negative ones. Just quickly on that. One of their, their, their big kind of marquee events of the year is this Indigenous Peoples Day, which is an UN-sponsored uh, event. And on Indigenous Peoples Day, they'll do these big White Lives Matter banner drops in various locations, put them online, seemingly to, uh, hoping to be picked up by the press. Yeah. Similarly, when they're calling into these late-night talk radio stations, they're trying to get traction that way. Is that about building PA, or is it just trying to get a, like a White Lives Matter message into the mainstream, do you think? Because it doesn't really kind of fit with the avoiding scrutiny kind of thing. Yeah, well, I suppose they're trying to avoid scrutiny of their kind of real world organisation and, yeah. you know, where they're meeting up and stuff like this. But on the other hand, they are trying to um, generate publicity uh, for this kind of white lives matter, a number of kind of memes or slogans and ideas, uh, concepts, talking points that they uh, kind of want to push into the mainstream um so far really with not much success there's a thing that probably some of our listeners are familiar with called the extremist dilemma which is that you have a group and they have some sort of extreme idea and they can make the group very large which uh, increases their ability to spread their message but decreases security or they can make their group very small which increases security but decreases their ability to spread their message and it seems like pa in some ways are trying to have their cake and eat it on the one hand, uh, they want to be, you know, able to spread their message very widely, but on the other hand, they're very reluctant to grow. Yeah, what I was going to say was, so they've, um, they're fairly media savvy. I think like the alt right, uh, you know, before, during, and after the 
uh, Trump campaign kind of learned a lot of lessons. If you look back through uh, the kind of 4chan, the archive 4chan posts where you could see these uh, Twitter campaigns being organised, you can see these, they're quite sort of savvy. They've at least claimed to have read, uh, you know, a lot of literature around like marketing communications and, this, and so uh, advertising psychology and this sort of thing. Uh, and a lot of people that are involved in PA are, are kind of were radicalised online during this period. So one thing, so you mentioned the kind of groping, phoning in talk radio shows to kind of uh, seed white nationalist talking points. That and I suppose the banner drop stunts are kind of try. What they're trying to do is to deliberately generate a kind of outrage, outraged coverage from the kind of liberal commentariat. And in the early early on uh in the in their kind of in doing these stunts they did have some success but i think it's kind of old news now you know um and the white lives matter banner drops even the first indigenous people's day was like a huge flop uh, the only thing that got any press coverage was when they went up ben nevis with one uh, and that was only local i've run out of well, the, the other thing, quickly before we move on, is the other thing about the White Lives Matter Great Replacement thing is that it's almost not extreme enough. Like, this is like a thing that, like, for example, Lionel Driver in The Spectator had a whole column recently which was about you don't want foreigners, you don't want um, foreign-born people coming into London and make it a foreign city, whatever it is he said. Like, this is like a very common thread of the right-wing press and certain sections of the Tory party that, you know, the there's too much immigration, um, there's too much non-white immigration, and therefore we need to preserve the British character, British values, all of this plays into it. So mm. it's almost not distinctive enough in many ways, I think. the white, Obviously, the white lives matter is, is designed to be deliberately provocative, but again, like it's not that much different from all lives matter, if you really like, you know, it's, it's an oppositional thing to black lives matter, you know? Well, I think the, uh, the 2066 meme their main talking point uh that they're trying to trying to push is that um white people in britain will be a minority by the year 2066 and this is according to one particularly kind of extreme forecast by um one uh fairly dodgy uh, demographics uh professor but i think this kind of stoking these anxieties around white extinction and the the need for the kind of urgent need for action in order to prevent this is slightly different to you know this kind of just op gen generic opposition to black lives matter because you know by framing kind of their sort of racist uh action as kind of self-defense i mean this is the sort of uh language and rhetoric that you see in uh terrorist manifestos where you know, it's never, it's always framed in terms of uh, self-defense and I had to do it, you know, our backs are against the wall, this type of thing. So I think, you know, there's a real dilemma. I mean, you mentioned the extremist dilemma, but there's another there's another dilemma for, for PA, which is that they kind of constantly whip up um, their supporter base with this like really incendiary extreme rhetoric. And yet they're very keen to disavow political violence but i mean you, you, there's only so many times you can say these things and um you know not not everyone that's listening and taking this seriously is going to be content with going on hikes and going on picnics you know some eventually 
some people are gonna uh, take Colette at his word and do take extreme uh, actions. Do you think those people are likely to emerge directly from PA? I mean, it could be from PA or whatever comes after it. I think. Um, I mean, there's a there's a real risk. I think to some extent, like the leadership is managing to keep a lid on these kinds of frustrations and tendencies towards more extreme action but we're already seeing that they're sort of beginning to do beginning to revert back to kind of flash mobs and uh miniature very quick uh street demonstrations so there's there's a large cohort of people on the british far right that want to take it to the streets you know want to be confrontational and it remains to be seen to what extent pa are going to kind of give into that at the moment they're playing it smart because they don't have the numbers to mobilize publicly but maybe in the future they will can you give us an estimate of what kind of numbers they have well it's difficult because they constantly claim that they have kind of ten thousand supporters and this is apparently based on email signups and then the other thing that they've said so about three thousand of them will be antifa journalists (laughs) random people the counterterrorism police and then the other thing that they've said is that for a long time they had this pretense that there were no members and it was only the leader and deputy leader that were the act- were the only members of the organisation and then this kind of became increasingly untenable once they started to appoint regional organisers and activists had to be vetted to attend their events so you know it depends what you mean by membership is it the number of people in their telegram chats is it the number of people that are regularly attending their events i mean we what have we estimated the membership at i think like anywhere from two to five hundred so i think any if you're if you're talking about it in terms of the number of people that are regularly attending uh pa events and are considered by the organization organization itself to be members or committed activists or whatever term they want to use then we would probably estimate that to be within the region of two to five hundred people so 10 million alleged supporters versus the bmp's one million votes i mean it's much smaller right it's like one percent of the size yeah i don't want to overestimate the kind of threat here i mean there's a broader threat i think in addition to kind of creating this network of uh nazis the other risk is that PA has had it's set out to and has had some success in pulling the British far right more generally away from kind of civic nationalist politics and towards a more kind of overtly racist ethno-nationalist politics. And I think the kind of this is a large part of the threat that PA represents is that this uh, this possibility that they will continue to shift the Overton window on the far right further towards um this kind of more extreme, overtly racist uh, politics. So this is a uh, really important thing to say, I think. Um, I want to kind of go back to comparisons with the BNP because Mark Collette, the leader of Patriotic Alternative, of course, comes out of the BNP. And I think we should talk through what his connections are with the BNP and how this is related to the construction of Patriotic Alternative. Are there lots of BNP members in Patriotic Alternative? Are we expecting them to move towards something like the BNP because of that? Is that PA's long-term goal, something like what the BNP did? The BNP, for those who are not from the UK, perhaps, is uh, was used to be an electoral organisation that contested elections. It was pretty successful at doing so. So Mark Collette, um, 
who is the leader of Patriotic Alternative, um, was formerly, I think in the early 2000s, the uh, chairman of the Young BNP, uh, which was the youth division of the BNP. Uh, he was also, um, I'm not sure if this was at the same time or later on, was director of publicity uh, for the BNP. And it's also, since we're talking about Colette, it's kind of, it's probably worth mentioning that he's kind of featured or starred maybe in uh, at least uh, two or three uh, documentaries, um, all in the early 2000s. Uh, my personal favourite is the kind of, yeah, the Russell Brand one, Peak peak Russell Brand. And uh, <laughs> I think we've yet to see Peak Russell Brand. <laughs> No, yeah. Peter Russell Brown was when he was regularly taking heroin. <laughs> that yeah. was when he was at his best. Well, he definitely uh, on something in like large part, large portions of this documentary. So he has these kind of at least two or three uh, kind of quite embarrassing documentaries. Um, two are kind of specifically about him. Uh, there's another one by the BBC called The Secret Agent that I think looks more spe- more generally at the BNP, uh, in which he was filmed or recorded uh, calling asylum seekers cockroaches uh the other two he kind of made sort of derogatory remarks about about gay people he also kind of professed his admiration of hitler and said that he would have preferred to live in uh, 1930s germany um van like i don't know leeds or wherever he was living at the time <laughs> um in in the early 2000s um and then well, considering at the time that Andy Vasio regularly putting through his front window on the regular basis, I think maybe living in 930s Germany would have been preferable. I'm sure he probably would have had an easier life, yeah. Yeah. So he's in his documentaries, he's kind of has this kind of embarrassment, embarrassing kind of uh, period early on in his, in his uh, career. He then in the late 2009, 2010 is... Uh, kicked out of the BNP um, for plotting to <laughs> <laughs> plotting Sorry, to plotting to kill Nick Griffin. Um, he who, who, was who was the leader at the time? Yeah, I think and, that's a that's a that's a exileable offence. I think. Yeah. I mean, up until this point, uh, Collett was really kind of Griffin's protege, and in one of the documentaries. Um, Griffin's on film saying, "Oh yeah, you know, in twenty years' time, he's going to take over leadership from me." Very clear that like Griffin is grooming him for this role. I also forgot to mention that as a result of some of the comments he's recorded made making in one of those documentaries, I think it's him, Tyndall, and Griffin all go on trial for race hate offences, <clears throat> and I think they are also acquitted. Um, so then, after after he's kicked out of BNP, he kind of disappears and goes off the map um, for several years. And then he kind of re-emerges um, in the wake of the election of Donald Trump and and the Brexit campaign. Uh, it kind of re-emerges around about the same time. Firstly, he appears campaigning for vote leave uh, alongside his then partner, who has a massive swastika tattooed on her chest. Uh, and also alongside Wayne Bell, a kind of uh, former uh, member of National Action and Violent Nutcase. Um, and then at the same time, he begins um, podcasting or live streaming um, with um, this kind of far-right personality from the States called Tara McCarthy uh, under the banner of This Week on the Alt-Right. Um, and he has a kind of, well, they both 
have a kind of rotating cast of guests and then later down the line this becomes uh his current show patriotic weekly review uh with a guy called jason cone who uses a pseudonym uh no white guilt who's just kind of hilariously goofy character he's kind of one of these characters who okay so in our book i don't want to do that kind of thing but like in our book we argue that there is a quite a large crossover between far influencers or um yeah reactionary influencers and like self-help gurus on the other hand you know kind of jordan peterson is probably the person who works out how to amalgamate these two um to the best extent you know to the tune of kind of tens of millions of dollars i'm obviously not suggesting that jordan peterson is nearly as extreme in terms of his politics as people who are discussing here he's obviously jordan peterson is not a neo-nazi um but you know, this guy, uh, No White Guilt, has this kind of program called Go Free, right, which is trying to liberate specifically white men from their um, shackles of guilt that they feel because of, you know, colonialism, blah, 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 and turn them, in, therefore, into the kind of these warriors, great, you know, thinkers, great kind of doers that all white men, of course, by virtue of their DNA, naturally are, as if this was the main kind of thing that was holding people back in society. I mean, this guy... Jason Cohen is just like the biggest dork, um, and for you know, official red flag position. No, but officially stamped. I do implore people to watch like at least a part of it, and because you know, really, I struggle to comprehend how either of these two, uh, Collett, you know, kind of all-round mediocre person, but Cohen in particular, kind of uh, embarrassingly. what's the word you know he kind of has this embarrassing victim complex and all he ever talks about is like how downtrodden uh white people are uh how bad white men have got it um and also he kind of (laughs) he does this thing which like quite a few of these uh far-right media personalities do where he kind of always wears like a shirt and tie when he's uh it's incredibly cringeworthy and uh sad well i always wear a suit when we do these episodes yeah yeah i I was gonna yeah. yeah I was going to make a joke about try and drop some kind of suit knowledge, but I don't have any. So (laughs) (laughs) that's the connection to the BNP is that Collette, uh, he also has this experience. You know, he was uh, chairman of the young BNP. He was uh, head of uh, BNP's publicity. Uh, He edited or published their magazine, I think, for a period of time. But he has this experience of being inside uh, an organization that's contending elections which i think is quite significant um and you know he's seen what happened with the bmp and its collapse and probably you know learned a few lessons from that um what do you think he's learned from it well it it remains to be seen i think he's the other thing is that so yeah you asked whether or not um if there's a lot of uh, overlap between pa members and former bmp members um this is really what we expected when we kind of first started to look look into the membership and who the regional organisers were. We kind of assumed they'd, be, or they'd all be kind of uh, old BNP uh, members and activists. By and large, this has not been the case. And I think this is really because Collett's burnt a lot of bridges. Um, I mean, we see this, we continue to see this, that when he falls out with people, he doesn't just kind of let it go. <laughs> He really goes after people and has these kind of really, yeah, there's like a lot of animosity that he kind of throws out towards his uh, people that he's kind of fallen out with. So I think 
a lot of people that would otherwise be inclined to join PA and perhaps share its politics are really put off by Colette's involvement. Um, there's been calls throughout um, PA's existence uh, for Colette to stand down as leader because he's kind of because he's had these embarrassing documentaries, because he's been photographed standing next to his ex-girlfriend with a giant swastika tattooed on her chest, he's not seen by a lot of people as a kind of credible leader to kind of lead the re-emergence of British fascism back into the mainstream. And also, the other thing that I will say is that he continues to... Um, you know, part of the problem with PA is that they have this another kind of dilemma is how upfront are they about their politics if they want to enter the mainstream because Collett continues to say on live he continues to talk about how Mein Kampf is one of his favorite books it's like a patently absurd thing to say if you're trying to garner like a wide base of support but because he just believes it so adamantly he's like well I'm right like why shouldn't I talk about this this is you know so I think uh, he's a difficult. I don't know. I think he's he got he's got a very weird energy when he's when he's streaming. Hmm. Like he'll he'll do these like nods and winks that kind of work when you kind of within a particular scene. He'll go things like, you know, I'm a nationalist and I'm also a socialist, and then you'll like let these audience put together those yeah. two words, and he is what he is. But like that doesn't work when you're like under any amount of scrutiny because someone's going to listen to him and saying. So you're saying you're a Nazi, and then everyone's going to say you're a Nazi, and this is a Nazi organization. Yeah. You've said it. You just you haven't even covered it very well, and so he, he he's an interesting like he's like obviously he's their founder. They built it off his like influential streams, and he kind of led them into an organization. He's also massively their biggest weight. Like this this history of like embarrassing documentaries, history with the BMP, and his like refusal to like hide his politics in any way it really is probably will be the the kind of ultimate demise of pa in many ways i mean in the in the discourse not in the in there so you mentioned these kind of chains of animosity between colette and four members of the bmp uh, obviously nick griffin who he you know allegedly plotted to kill but the one that kind of really struck me um in terms of animosity was um in early 2020 during lockdowns when kind of um, street demonstrations are basically kind of entirely stopped was the number of people who Mark Collette was seemingly trying to poach from Toby Robertson's kind of um, milieu. Oh God, what's the name of this guy um, who was kind of famous, leader of the UK Yellow Vests, um, who's kind of famous for shouting at Anna Subri, James Goddard. Um, and that was kind of his point of you know, highest fame uh, in his life. Kind of extraordinary achievement, right? Um, you know, you have a Wikipedia article written about you, and the the main thing on it is like a kind of a moment of like um, uh, abuse in the street. Anyway, so he was in kind of Tommy Robertson's circle, and it was he was kind of trying to do the same kind of thing as Tom Robertson. He was like filming himself doing stuff, um, doing kind of very like uh, hackneyed kind of street journalism, and so on, like filming himself doing stuff um, while he was uh, talking to people in the street. And he was very much in that kind of circle and very much in that kind of mold. And then he appeared on Mark Collette's live stream. And he's kind of changed in some way. He's like, you know, Mark Collette, you know, has kind of opened my eyes and so on. Well, you know, what is he talking about here? He's talking 
to be honest, probably about anti-Semitism, right? Like Mark Collette has kind of opened his eyes to the kind of the truth of anti-Semitism. And that's what Mark Collette has been doing to kind of poach these people from Tolly Robertson's circle, because that is the kind of fixation of Mark Collette's worldview, um, which has caused him some issues with other people on the far right as well, Jared Taylor and so on, who's not an anti-Semite. Yeah. But even then, he's brought in these influencers and he's equally equally rightly kicked them out as well. Yes. He, had, he brought in Chris Mitchell, who was like a Tommy Robinson guy as well, who had his own stream called Patriotic Talk, which was like very, for a time, was like another PA outlier uh, stream that was listed on their official streams you can watch throughout the week kind of thing. And he's had a very public fallout with Chris Mitchell, kicked him out of the organisation. He had a very public falling out with another guy, Vinnie Sullivan, kicked him out of the organisation. And, and and not just, like you said, this burning bridges thing is the key. He's not just kicked them out or frozen them out or demoted them. He's, like, trashed them. He's gone out of his way to, like, really escalate things massively. So he brings people in, he burns them, he kicks them out. I think, like, part of, uh, part of the story of the... The emergence of PAs, Collett's uh, really savvy and quite successful use of YouTube and these um, these guest appearances, both having guests on his channel and him featuring on other people's channels, in order to build, you know, his audience and the audience of his guests um, by having you know their audiences uh, come over from one channel to the other, and in many ways he's kind of continued to do this now that he's moved back into real world organizing. So, I mean, the thing with Chris Mitchell, Chris Mitchell was a kind of, even as late as uh, 2019 was attending uh, Tommy Robinson demonstrations. It was kind of a uh, fairly unremarkable uh, Tommy supporter. Um, however, he did own or moderate, I suppose, the largest unofficial uh, Tommy Robinson supporter chat on Telegram had like two or three thousand uh, people active in it, I think. Compared to Tyrell, this is like 80,000. Yeah, yeah, sure. But that's a channel where you can't... Um, yeah, you can't you, talk in that. You channel. can't talk in yes, it, right? Broadcast channel. And um obviously was aware of this and kind of reached out to Mitchell and basically, yeah, did the same thing that you were talking about with James Goddard, kind of opened his eyes. Uh, you know, one of the things that he likes to do is kind of engage in these online quote-unquote debates with people who uh don't share his views uh, and there's this kind of belief on the far right i think you might have talked about it before that kind of debates are seen as this kind of tool with which you can reveal the underlying truth but actually you know collet uh for all of his flaws is fairly uh, skilled um at using rhetoric to put put across his his arguments and you know it's not hard to see how uh somebody like james goddard could be like completely bowled over by this and um sort of awestruck by uh this guy who has maybe a kind of more coherent worldview than him um so yeah then the patriotic sorry the tommy what was it called tr talk i think used to be chris mitchell's uh, telegram channel was rebranded as patriotic talk and became a sort of more overtly uh ethno-nationalist anti-semitic chat and several of the people that were active in that were kind of brought over towards a pa worldview so yeah this ties back you know not only has pa collectively kind of tried to shift the overton window further towards uh, ethno-nationalism through like seeding uh, white nationalist talking points and so on but collet 
quite you know uh in quite a savvy way has kind of deliberately sought out uh key people on the sort of in tommy robinson's sphere and targeted them to you know uh, win them over to his way of seeing things we've mentioned a few times this kind of distinction civic nationalist versus ethno nationalist as wondering if you could just give us a short like kind of uh, summary of how you see that distinction what it is <laughs> so a, a civic nationalist would uh i mean like the conservative party a civic nationalist no yeah so yeah so you britishness is something that you is about uh values and culture um whereas uh, ethno-nationalists would say that no matter how uh assimilated somebody who is not white or is born in a different country is uh they can never be british because they're not kind of genetically british um so for example a civic nationalist would believe that you could be indian and british whereas uh, an ethno-nationalist would believe that those are mutually exclusive categories yeah which is what tommy robinson means i suppose when he says he's not racist yeah i think this is um why for example the argument about islam being a religion and not a race right um to kind of put it into that cultural terrain is so important for civic nationalists because they don't want to be seen as as racist because they think of it you know as a kind of cultural distinction and so on um but this is all very much kind of like war on terror era discourse in some way like uh, this is kind of maybe a strange or like abstract or even kind of conspiratorial question but i'm kind of wondering if the reason why we haven't seen like um pa have more success than they already have is in part because the terrain that is not really kind of there right so civic nationalism uh in the 2010s the edl and so on in some ways like does the same kind of thing that the state does right it's arguing for state policy so the edl are like you know we should clown down on these muslims and the state is like well here we have prevent and so on here we have you know these kind of other policies and in some ways like there's there's this very clear fit between uh, the far right and the state, and they seem to kind of mash together quite well. And But at the moment, it's not really clear what PA is going to do. And part of me thinks that the reason why it's not really clear what to do is because British politics as a whole um, is at a kind of strange juncture, right? So on the one hand, uh, it might do, the patriotic alternative might do what the National Front did, which is eventually kind of give in to the necessity of street demonstrations. It might go down the electoral route. It might produce kind of fire influences. It might become a kind of a, a terrifying kind of incubator for terrorism and so on. And it's not clear why, oh, sorry, it's not clear which one it's going to do. And it seems like the reason for that might be that it's because contemporary British politics is at a strange disjunction but it's also dominated by um like it's also dominated by the almost completely hegemonic force of um a kind of authoritarian variant of one nation conservatism so on the one hand you have kind of boris johnson being kind of affable and kind of uh, at least i mean in his own head kind of like amusing uh or at least you know uh, and then on the other hand you have um pretty patel at the home office um doing kind of more and more and more authoritarian uh, anti-migrant stuff right so organizing pushbacks into the channel and so on and things that are genuinely contentious from the standpoint of international law and which should be you know, repudiated by uh, anyone with even kind of the, the faintest humanist streak so in some ways there's not clearly a space for patriotic alternative to operate in at the moment i don't think because that whole thing has been absorbed the whole kind of fire right space in some ways been absorbed by the state but in a way that makes it not look like it has been I mean, they've had their originally. They the idea was to become a political party and to contest, I guess, local elections. 
But uh, was it? Like, this is the thing I Well, really yeah, so it's an interesting... I mean, they've had their um, uh, application to do so rejected, I think, four times now by the Electoral Commission. And yeah, the extent to which they genuinely or sort of sincerely believe that electoral politics was a viable route uh, for them is up for question, I think. I'm sure, you know, some supporters uh, did genuinely believe in it, but I think the leadership was using it in a more sort of cynical way to generate publicity, um, yeah, as a vehicle for, yeah, this kind of generating publicity through this model of kind of uh, stoking liberal outrage um and then also being rejected by the electoral commission and putting out this narrative oh yes of course of course they don't want us to be a party because they're scared we'll win elections and and so on but then the reasons they were actually rejected are utterly stupid i mean the, the argument against that is that if you wanted that narrative that you were getting rejected by electoral commission would you go to the bother of applying full time and getting rejected? So this is why i think it's like a genuine lack of strategy can I say just what the reasons were why they were rejected by the Electoral Commission? So the first one was that PA's logo was a tick in a box, which is obviously one of the things that is banned by the Electoral Commission. I mean, it says it on the form. When someone comes to vote, they will see the tick and they'll think, aha, yeah, I'll put my tick in that box. That's the one I'm supposed to tick. So this makes me think that they were deliberately putting out, they were deliberately, deliberately failing. It also, they could put out this narrative, oh yeah, they don't want us to succeed. You know, they're rejecting us and so on. But then again, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, why would you do that four times? Nah, the the um, it wasn't as stupid each time. But I think <laughs> there was certainly a period where we were wondering if Collett has had kind of was doing this intentionally. Um, I mean, the thing is, what are there? Yeah, it's unclear what the they have a strategy for growth, but it's unclear what the what the plan is in the kind of longer duration. They're not going to, it doesn't look like they're going to be able to contest elections. Um, I suppose they could do it through some sort of proxy party that is, you know, not PA on paper, but essentially is made up of the same people. Um, I don't think, I don't think the leadership believes in an electoral route to power. Um, They really can't, at the moment staged kind of confrontational street demonstrations because um i think they'll get smashed because the police are really kind of um uh i think trigger happy is the wrong word but like really kind of like sensitive to the far right after no they're too small and you look at the look at the confidence of the people look at their confidence of their membership like who are people turning up to private events how scared are they about about being photographed at these events, like really scared, and there's not that many people come to these private events. So a public event, like, you know, they would, and they would get smashed as well. They also can't do the thing which Generation Generation Identity did in 2018, which is kind of ally with like wider, bigger fire crowds, you know, Tony Robertson, UKIP and so on, all to kind of together making these um, bigger marches. And Generation Identity were the kind of the hardcore of that, group but mark collette has been such an asshole to so many people on the far right that he actually can't form these alliances anymore yeah i was just gonna say so what are their options uh you know it's like they can't engage in armed struggle or <laughs> or uh no we want well they can't do. i mean they're, what they're tr- please do not engage in armed struggle they're trying to like, they're trying to no don't do it you're gonna get, lose you'll get prescribed so quickly man yeah well they can't 
not even engaging in armed struggle, but they can't even become any more militant than they already are for risk of prescription. So, uh, so okay, so this is what I wanted to get onto. So we, we've already established that they've been trying to very, present a very anodyne, very neutral, uh, public-facing image. We're a community-building organisation for white people, but we, you know, we do harvest festivals and walks, and we, you know, have a camping trip once a year. We have a brand of tea. We have a brand of tea. However, there are many documented links to, links to much more hardcore, much more extreme elements of the British far right, notably uh, national action. And so, part of the Times expose, which you guys were involved in, um, in providing research for, was that Colette had previously been filmed training knife fighting with uh, uh, this guy called Garen Helm, who um, is was a member of National Action, their um, PA West Yorkshire organiser and husband of the deputy leader Laura Towler, uh, Sam Mellier, um, you know, had recently had his house raided by counter terror police um, for for sus for suspi suspicion of being a member of National Action. We don't no, know. It, that wasn't, it wasn't for that, but he also was previously associated with National Action. He was previously associated, not probably not a member, but he was famously well, not famously because no one knows about it. But he was photographed <laughs> in a meeting with National Action members after the group was prescribed in a pub with like the leader and various other people. So this guy had some involvement. Um, and has just had his house raided by counter-terror police. Around the same time that other former National Action members were having their houses raided. Right. So I'm sure, although the stated reason is not anything to do with National Action, uh, you, I wouldn't be surprised if they're having a little look on his devices for information connecting him to National Action after so, the battle. So prescription also makes it a defence to offer moral support to members of an organisation which has been banned. So that's also kind of a plausible uh, reason. It seems to me that they're very, very scared about the possibility about being proscribed. Like, they don't want to get banned by the state from existing as an organisation. That would obviously be very bad for their growth strategy um, and also put a lot of them in serious legal jeopardy. Um, what what do you think the chances of, a of the state prescribing particular alternative are? And do you think that should happen? I mean... Just to go back to the national action thing, I mean, there are other links, you know, uh, like I mentioned earlier, Collier was photographed uh, at the Vote Leave uh, stall he was doing with Wayne Bell, former member of NA. There's uh, the guy that heads up their uh, PA's fitness initiative. There's a British expat called Chris Kearns, who claims to have been a former member of uh, NA. Um, there's also the regional fitness officer for the... Yorkshire region, um, whose name escapes me, Jake Buick, um, also a former NA supporter or activist. So I, I presume a fair amount of our listeners are aware of who National Action are, but to give you the brief cliff notes, they were a breakaway, or a lot of their members were a breakaway of the young BMP um, post-collapse. So Griffin was still in charge, but they were going nowhere. And you have often, often with these situations, you have a classic thing of like younger people seeing the moribund state of the organisation breaks away to start their new, more vital, uh, vital as in full of vitality, not vital as in very important and necessary um, <laughs> organisation. And the organisation that came about was, of course, National Action, um, who from the offset were deliberately 
uh, went for a pro- pro- like their main thing was pro- provocation. So they dressed in very scary, all black, uh, black sunglasses. They marched in formation with very kind of not uh, fascist looking flags with their logo on it, black, all in black, of course. Uh, they uh, said the most extreme things they could uh, on these demonstrations, you know, very, very, very anti-Semitic, uh, very, very racist uh, kind of thing. Yeah, there's this um, Jack Renshaw quote where he says that what we learned from the Nazi period is that you shouldn't show the Jews mercy. Yeah, so like just really out there stuff and none of they were participated in a few kind of white man's marches one in newcastle and then later there was a a demonstration they they, they organized in liverpool which was an unmitigated disaster most of the a fair amount of the men were getting knocked out by the people of liverpool and anti-fascists and they were kind of sur- famously surrounded in a lost property um office in the train station while being pelted with various things like for hours and hours and it was only after uh, after the uh, the murder of MP Joe Cox um, by I can't remember the guy's name um, that they got prescribed for tweeting out something like six hundred and forty nine to go or something, uh, which got them quickly banned from Twitter uh, and eventually uh, prescribed. They were the first far right group organisation to be prescribed in the UK, leaving aside various loyalist uh, far right loyalist. Uh, militia groups who you know were prescribed in the separate legislation in a very different context um and so post prescription they continued in 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 a, in a looser formation because legally they weren't allowed to meet together as national action or any organization that was national action like and it was in this period where in this post-prescription period, eventually a lot of them were arrested for still being members of the organisation after prescription and sent away for you know, very long prison sentences, like up to six, seven years. Um, and of course, famously, one of their poster boys, Jack Ringshaw, was uh, convicted of preparing to murder another MP and a police officer who was investigating him and also, for good measure, was convicted of grooming some young boys um underage boys um uh, so that's the the lowdown on national action the, the the key the key takeaway about them of course is that they came out of the bmp so these this extremity came out of something that was much more innocuous do we think they should be prescribed no um because i mean i i think they should have the I don't know, I have conflicting views. I don't think they should be prescribed. I don't think it would do anything to... Yeah, the main reason uh, I don't think they should be prescribed is it wouldn't do anything to alter the political beliefs of anyone that's currently involved. They would just continue to um, hold the same views, but they would have no legitimate outlet for them. So... That means your only outlet is if if any if expressing your views or networking with people that share your views is rendered illegal, then you really don't have any other options apart from to take extreme measures. So I mean, this is what I think you mentioned it in the previous episode with Jack Renshaw. It was only after you know it's kind of self fulfilling prophecy, right? It's only after uh, uh, national action was banned that he decided to. Um, you know, try and kill an MP or, or whatever. Um, although he was a nonce prior to that. 
We did realize we killed Mohal on the last episode. Um, uh, in the context of Order of Nine Angles, which is a whole separate issue, you've probably got a take on as well. Um, but the thing about... I was talking about this with, a, with an anti-fascist writer a few weeks ago, and we were saying that, you know, that, that we, this is in the context of um, of people being of deplatforming far right figures on Twitter, for example. And it's like there is a way you could conceive of a deplatforming that is a part, like a, a result of a demand of an anti-fascist movement, a mass anti-fascist movement who's made a demand on Twitter uh, and has the membership or the kind of uh, moral authority to back up that demand, uh, and then they get taken down, rather than a kind of almost technocratic policy policy nitpicking, hmm. um, policy changes, um, that the kind of thing that Hope Not Hate advocates for, for better or for worse, and, we, and it, which results in like a big takedown of, of you know, extremist content in general. Um, we've seen before that this kind of policy of social media companies to like, um, not censor, censor extre extremist content left and right has meant that things like It's Going Down has been, uh, you know, heavily affected by Facebook and and, and have been taken off their Patreon, for example. So, yeah, it's a, you could see a case for that. I would say it's much more legitimate if, um, if like, like I would rather PA stop existing as an, as an organization because anti-fascists have made that happen rather than them being canceled by, not canceled, fuck, <laughs> but not rather than being prescribed by the British state by a fairly hard right British state. Um, and as a way, as a sop to... This thing I want to, this is the one of the things I want to get into about the BNP, because you mentioned that National Action came out of the BNP, and that's really an important thing about them. Um, PA in some ways also comes out of the BNP, although slightly later, obviously. Um, but BNP was a kind of a, um, a front in some ways. Like, this is explicitly the strategy of Nick Griffin when he becomes leader in 1999. Kind of modernizes the party, right? He's very deliberate that, and very says there's a speech that he's, he's recorded doing this. He says we're going to look like we are pivoting away from this, like you know, highly, highly explicitly racist part of our past. But actually, don't worry, you, the party faithful, you know really we're the same old racists. We still believe the same old racist thing. Mm. Um, don't worry, it's all a front. And I'm kind of wondering, like, there have been very strange. So in some ways, like, what's happened is that the front. It, it, so it, like, sorry, it kind of fairly here. It's probably the BNP is is, is an ethnic organisation pretending to be a civic nationalist organisation. Yeah. Right. What has produced this kind of splitting between the civic nationalists and the ethnicists? Is it the collapse of the BNP? Why is it that these are now two distinct parts of the British part, right? Whereas before they were able to be kind of emer merged into to one. Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, probably the rise of the alt right, and it's like for a time, uh, what was perceived by many people to be its success, probably gave Colette some ideas. Yeah. Um, also, I think in the UK, there's a kind of very uh, specific context right where i mean you were talking earlier about how um the, the large parts of the british far right see themselves as uh, fundamental or see britishness and its role in world war Two as being 
fundamentally about the opposition to Nazism. Um, so I think it's that's another reason. I don't, yeah, I don't, it's a difficult um, question to answer, I think. <laughs> like, I think that's a split that can probably quite easily collapse and become a lot more muddied. Um, there are certainly people, I mean, especially with the kind of free speech crowd, there are a lot of people that are not um, ethno-nationalists that will nevertheless give people like Collet a platform um, to kind of put their view across. And I feel like that's, that's kind of inevitably a one-way flow of traffic in terms of supporters if that continues to happen toward, towards the more extreme. The connection with the alt-right seems to me really important because, it, it, because the alt-right is the moment at which far-right politics, A, becomes genuinely quite countercultural. I know this is people like, no, it's not true. I genuinely think it's true. Mm-hmm. Far-right politics did become countercultural um, in, in that moment. And it's also the, the moment at which a kind of a logic of like edge play um, essentially becomes like, the dominant logic of the far-right. I can be more edgy than you. No, I can be more edgy than you. No, I can be more edgy than you. And so on. There's kind of this escalation. It's kind of a... You know, acceleration, if you will, towards something like a uh, the absolute extremity. That's mm-hmm. kind of reached its limit, I think. But PA is the coalescence around something very, very close to that edge, very close to the legal edge in the UK. At least. It's obviously like there's a lot of there's a lot of work that you're not going to talk about what Red Flare does um, in order to acquire the information that gets put in newspapers and stuff. And you recently you posted on Twitter about uh, photographing extensively photographing the annual PA hike um, that happened. Uh, recent in summer um so you, you're sitting on a bunch of stuff what makes you decide to publish and what are the kind of things you have published like is it so we were talking to joe mulhall about this and he was saying that you know they sit on things until they have a right time to do it and hope not did, did this recently with the tory party conference where they wheeled a, a tory councillor was involved in in a in a pa chat and had been supporter of, of pa what is your philosophy about relief releasing information what is your philosophy about keeping information to yourself yeah, it's a difficult one. Um, I think it seems like there is a tendency on amongst anti-fascists to sort of just publish um, information kind of immediately. Uh, you know, there's a whole number of Twitter accounts that are just constantly uh, publishing the identities of fairly kind of low-level, irrelevant um, far-right figures. And I think the risk is that um you know if it's just a kind of deluge of of information uh people kind of tune out and don't know what's important and you know because there are you can do this all day you know looking at facebook accounts of people that are on the periphery of britain first or the dfla and you know it's not hard to identify people and find out their real names and where they work and this stuff so with pa uh we've been quite conscious that we because they've uh, set themselves up in a way where each region has an organiser, um, most of whom have taken, uh, you know, measures to conceal or obfuscate their identities. We've been quite keen to identify, first and foremost, the regional organisers, which we've had a fair bit of success with. Um, we're really not that interested in just any old supporter of PA. I mean, we know the identities of a large number of them, but we, unless there are kind of exceptional circumstances, we 
are not in favour of just public publicising the identities of any kind of low-level supporter. I think there's a real risk that by doing this, you know, you run the risk of ostracising people from their colleagues and uh, family members and you know again there's a risk of a self self-fulfilling pro prophecy right where they could just say okay i've been exposed as a neo-nazi uh i may as well go and hang out with all my neo-nazi friends rather than go and hang out with my other friends that might keep my mind open to kind of less extreme worldviews i suppose i don't like using the word extreme but it's not <laughs> the extremity is not what's wrong with pa it's the fact that they're like misanthropic racists and it's a question of values rather than like extremeness so yeah i think there's a there's a risk that you can if you publish if you're too keen to publish on people that are not that important then you there's a risk that people can tune out and there's a risk that the people that you expose can get pushed further into the far right in terms of releasing information strategically yeah i think we completely agree with that we sit on a lot of information Sometimes we never release information, you know, sometimes it's just not, there never comes a time where it's relevant to release it. Uh, often the other thing that we're kind of really keen to do is, and this is another kind of shortcoming, I think, of maybe some other anti-fascist research groups, is that um, we put a particularly kind of high bar on verification and we're very keen that we kind of don't publish, publish incorrect information um, or you know the incorrect identities of people you know often a lot of people that are kind of doxxed on twitter or whatever it turns out later that it's just like you know the wrong person which is pretty embarrassing and uh yeah so we're for that reason because we're so we hold verification to be so important it often takes months and months to finally nail down that somebody is actually who we think they are and of course, the implication, of, just to go back a bit of what you just said, is that if uh, an ordinary supporter of PA who you know the identity of became a regional organiser, you would publish that information about them. Is, yeah. that, is that the bar there for that? Yeah, and that happened recently with Anthony Burroughs, who was the, became the regional organiser for the East Midlands. Um, yeah. <laughs> who also uh, <laughs> uh, wrote a PA's cyber security guide, um, who who's uh yeah great job anthony great yeah. job great job anthony burroughs your obsec is tight i think you're like kind of first big red flag's first big story that was in vice was an expose of this guy who we've all come to know quite intimately through the stories you published nicholas hill who lives in south london um who is still currently so to much to my surprise the uh PA regional organiser for London, even though he's been doxxed, even though he's a massive freak. Um, just quickly, if you could introduce Nick Hill for us, and why do you think that he is still the PA London organiser after so much incompetence in his uh, political organising history? Yeah, um, Nick Hill um, goes by the online pseudonym Cornelius. Um, it's quite remarkable, actually, how much information we're able to find out about this guy. Uh, so he's previously involved in... Well, in fact, let me let me backtrack a little bit. So he was previously a, a Liberal Demo Democrat candidate for, I want to say, uh, Lewisham, Lewisham Council. And then in 20... Around about 2016, his uh, 
then flatmate or lodger, uh, who was a, a schizophrenic man, uh, tried to kill him with a meat cleaver. He's also, uh, I think, Czech guy, uh, his flatmate. And this kind of, so in, in Cornelius's eyes, an immigrant, this kind of sparked his uh, trajectory into the far right. So initially he joined UKIP, were actually able to find uh, photographs of him uh, on an old Facebook page attending a UKIP meeting. We were, then we found out that after uh, being involved in UKIP, he was involved in Generation Identity uh, UK. Yeah, we, I mean, we found the photograph of him attending the GI conference as well, which we actually, which actually had for a long time prior to looking back at it and going, oh yeah, it's the same guy. And then after this, he attended a traditional Britain conference, which is a kind of racist networking event that gets held at various kind of high-end central London hotels once a year. Attended this with kind of other members of the kind of nascent patriotic alternative when it when it was kind of still in its embryonic stage. So I guess, yeah, so Nick Hill was, was and continues to be the London regional organiser for patriotic alternative. At the time that we learnt his identity, he was cohabiting with two other uh, young Nazis, one of whom was a convicted child sex offender, who we were able to photograph him bringing to a PA event along with a uh, remote controlled car. And the other was a guy called uh, Ryan Williams, who a former co-host of a PA adjacent podcast called The Absolute State of Britain, which is kind of uh, kind of absurdly, uh, disgustingly racist uh, podcasts. Um, so he's he Ryan has subsequently uh, stepped down from that role after we um, publicised his identity, and yeah, both of the younger men no longer live with Nick. Why is he still uh, involved in Pierre? Uh, so yeah, Nick Hill continues to be uh, the London regional organiser, despite kind of this kind of series of embarrassing uh, events that have happened to him. He has had a number of infiltrators um, involved in leaking his chat logs, and uh, people have his events have been disrupted on a number of occasions uh, by anti-fascists. He was also responsible for the southeast region during the period in which this uh, Tory councillor was apparently expressing his support for PA in Southeast group chats while using his real name as a screen name. So it's obviously not uh, kind of keeping the security of his uh, group chats up to scratch. Why does he continue to be uh, the regional organiser? Well, I think after the southeast regional organiser stood down following the disruption of one of his events, they struggled for a long time to replace him. I think there's probably a concern that, you know, London, as far as PAC, is enemy territory. And I think there's not going to be many people that are willing to step up to the plate in terms and, you know, adopt the same role. There's also, uh, it's quite likely that he's a kind of Bitcoin, Bitcoin multi-millionaire. He's an early Bitcoin adopter, so he's probably fairly wealthy from that. Uh, so he probably bankrolls PA to some extent. Oh wow! I don't think that uh, Bitcoin millionaire was really the crossover I was expecting. Well, he also runs. 
He also runs like a a number of online businesses, including a, like a weed para paraphernalia business. I don't think that really, still runs, but he did have it. Yeah, which doesn't really cut with his clean cut Christian image, you know. So I have one last question. Um, can we talk about the geographical distribution of PA? Whereabouts in the UK are they based, and so on? Yeah, I think they're probably strongest in the uh, the Midlands and Scotland. I think the East and West Midlands groups have now started to subdivide so they have um, kind of sub-regional groups who are organizing events independently of the overarching regional groups scotland is being headed up or or partly headed up by kenny smith a uh, former member of the british national party who depending on who you, who you believe was may well have been involved in the leaking of the um, bmp membership list and is now curiously been appointed as Collett as the uh, national administration or officer for PA so yeah Scotland appears to be uh, one of the largest one of the largest groups long along with the Midlands region but there are other, there are a number of other areas that they are either failing to get a foothold in or have kind of uh, stunted growth so Wales obviously London and the southeast uh, um basically dormant or london's uh operating you know behind closed doors uh non not publicly northeast i think they have yet to appoint anyone as a, as a regional organizer so they don't have kind of blanket coverage over the whole of the uk and i think there are yeah, i think you know london and the southeast is always going to be difficult for them okay well that's all we've got time for um in this interview we've been going quite a long time and hopefully some people have a better understanding of of pa and it's um its structure and the people behind some of the people behind it if you've got any final things you want to say any shout outs you want to do any 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 uh work you want to draw attention to just to say if people want to get involved or um help contribute to our research efforts then please uh follow us on twitter at uh red flare info you can also email us um mail at red info uh or you can contact us on the Signal Messenger app, uh, the phone numbers on our Twitter. Uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for having us. Yeah, and if you're in PA, I would leave now. Yeah, a shout out to Kenny Smith and all of his uh, counterintelligence uh, minions for listening to this. I hope it was worth your time. Well, we didn't even get into the counterintelligence wing of PA. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's kind of a Easter egg. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can go over to Patreon, where we now have a whole bunch of more premium episodes and essays and other things like that. We're also starting a book club for people who want to get more into this stuff. You can read along with us. We'll talk about it. We'll have regular Zoom calls. It'll be great fun. And on the higher tier, we'll even send you a copy of our two books when they drop. That's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what. All the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project. And thanks a lot for listening again and I'll see you very soon. How can we imagine a world beyond prisons and police, borders and surveillance? Rust Belt Abolition Radio is an abolitionist media and movement building project based in Detroit, Michigan. Each monthly episode amplifies the voices of those impacted by mass incarceration and explores ongoing work in the movement to abolish the carceral state and racial capitalism. Tune in to Rust Belt Abolition Radio here on the Channel Zero Network and visit www.rustbeltradio.org to learn more. 12 rules. Yeah, it's nice.